we have not had a reckoning of how important we want physical appearance to be in society because it is it is important so when people with eating disorders males included are overvaluing their appearance there is a degree of well i can understand that because we value it a lot this month for Let's Talk In Depth, we're going to spend some time with Dr. Scott Griffiths. He initially joined us in episode two of season one, Men We Need To Talk. He's one of Australia's top researchers in eating and body image disorders, and he's a National Health and Medical Research Council fellow at the University of Melbourne, and he's currently involved in an ongoing study into the male experience of eating disorders. As you know, one thing that we love to do on this show is challenge the stereotype surrounding eating disorders. Researchers tell us that people usually think of a young, wealthy white woman when they think of someone who might suffer from an eating disorder. But the statistics tell us that men are affected far more than many people realise. And Dr. Griffiths says he thinks that's just the tip of the iceberg. Men, on average, tend to be quite different. It stems from the types of bodies that men and women want for themselves. If you take 100 boys and 100 girls and you say, hey, what do you want to look like? What stresses you out? How do you think you should look? They'll give yeah. very different answers. Girls will describe wanting to be thin or skinny or toned. They probably won't mention things like their height, for example, or to be conspicuously muscular. But boys will. They'll use terms like, I want to be jacked, I want to be built, I want to be tall. And the basic thesis is that eating disorders reflect the differences in how people go about trying to get those bodies for themselves. Does, is this something that that occurs in men as frequently as it does women? Because I, I know that that's certainly not how the diagnoses are stacking up. It depends. So if if we assume that the eating disorders that we see and know about now are all that are out there, then men are a minority of eating disorder diagnoses, except for perhaps for binge eating disorder when men account for approximately half. But a large thrust of what our research team does and what research teams around the world are finding is that if you accept that how eating disorders manifest differs depending on the population you're looking at, it would not surprise me if there are many more men with eating disorders out there we just don't see them because we're not ready to look for them. They don't come and see us. I guess that feeds back into the problem that we have with stigma, which is a massive thing for both men and women. But I think for men in particular, there's probably a, a more stark issue with coming forward in the first place. Men are really reluctant to go and see a doctor in the first place to talk about these things with their friends and to engage with a a psychology professional if that's what's required one of the easiest things to point blame at is masculinity and adherence to traditional ideas of that which discourage uh, help seeking because self-reliance and being emotionally equipped and in control is a part of that traditional masculine archetype and sure enough the dudes who have muscularity oriented eating disorders they are particularly adherent to those ideals of masculinity. And I think that is a large contributor of why the eating disorder field just does not see those men. So tell me what, what different types of uh, eating disorders or what different reasons there are behind the eating disorders for men. 
So you can have relatively low key differences in the eating disorders we already know about. So for example, in binge eating disorder, if you look at the type of foods that men and women binge on, for women, you are more likely to get foods that are very high in sugar, whereas men will go for more meaty, protein-heavy, savory foods. And to the extent that you get those foods from different places, like the, the nature of binge eating looks different. But that's a relatively low-key difference. A high-key difference would be what kind of drugs might a young boy and a young girl use if they're trying to achieve the body types that boys and girls typically want. It's, again, the very tip of what we think is an iceberg of, of pathos that the eating disorders field doesn't see all that much. Most of this seems to be stemming from societal problems, problems with our society that we just don't sort of accept these kind of problems and have ways to deal with them. Can anything be done? Well, plenty can be done, and it de depends on the level of analysis you're talking about. So if we're talking about society, for example, we have not had a reckoning of how important we want physical appearance to be in society, because it is. It is important. Literally, everyone puts some degree of effort into their appearance, whether it's how they uh, dress themselves or style their hair or the type of people they're attracted to and pursue. I don't think we've had that reckoning. So when people with eating disorders, males included, are overvaluing their appearance, there is a degree of, well, I can understand that because we value it a lot and it seems to be overvalued. So you overvaluing it as well is not completely unrealistic. I think it's unjust and a tragedy, but that's where we're at. So that's the societal level. If we want to see more men coming forward, we need to make efforts to go out and find them where they are. This means using methods and channels that are different to what we've been doing, which we tend to use and are successful with respect to getting young women or women in general to come along. And that's been a big part of our research team's focus, trying to get to men where they are. What are the ways that we can reach out to men? What are the ways that we can let them know that there's help and that they should be looking for it? One, one example, a study that we launched, it's called Gay Bodies Worldwide. It was a collaboration between uh, our research team and Grindr, the, the hookup dating application for gay men. We co-designed animations that would function as advertisements. So when you were swiping in the app, you would see one of six animated advertisements telling people to come into this study. And we launched just over 3 million of those all around Australia, all around Canada, uh, the US and the UK, and ultimately recruited 8,000 people into that study, which is the largest longitudinal wow. study of gay men in history. We did that on a $30,000 budget. And I think that with more meaningful efforts like that, where you only design your study or your outreach initiative once you've got the method for getting to men and substantial numbers of men in place, right? Getting that up front, then you can make this happen. But it really requires you to sit down and say, where are men? How do we access them? You said then there's going to be a reckoning about our, how we judge appearance and how we treat appearance. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? We're, we're approaching the point where technology is allowing us to shape our appearance in increasingly radical and permanent ways 
whether that's advances in plastic surgery or the advent of gene editing for embryos, things that allow us to shape our appearance to be more in line with an appearance that we value, but which is largely, I would say, co-opted by what society values or deems attractive. So if we're going to reconcile with these technologies, we have to reconcile with how important we want appearance to be in our lives, because it is just unfair to, to have people valuing their appearance and to manipulate their body weight and then to turn around and call them vain or tell them to outright stop when all of society clearly values it so much. I, I think it right. would be useful yeah. for a reckoning where we decide, hopefully, that it ought to be a lot less important because unless we do that, people will still get caught in this bind. But we, isn't it human nature? Like, isn't the whole idea that men desire women who look a particular way, they will be quite open about that that's what they find attractive. How would you change that? We should always be careful when we allude to the natural order of things. Evolutionary psychology is guilty of this often, where it's assumed that the current way of things, how things are, is necessarily how things ought to be because we arrive at these points through natural selection or through forces that are generations and generations, tens of thousands of years old. And this has been used to justify all sorts of things that we've now changed. Uh, the accounts of racism, for example, to draw on the, yeah. the Black Lives Matters protests, that was also uh, spoken about in terms of the natural order of things. And it would yeah. have been considered extremely radical to conceive of the sort of world we have now as flawed as it still is. So rather than just accept that men's preference for thinner women or uh, women's preference for taller men to just draw uh, a gendered parallel is natural and therefore immodifiable, we should, because we are invested in this field and these psychological disorders, have that reckoning because if it turns out that it's not immutable and it can be changed we will staunch the flow of eating disorders we won't have to uh, do okay. all of this effort to fix the problem the problem will in large part diminish what are some services and things like that that are perhaps missing directly on the ground is other the services that we need for for men existing services could do more to bring in more men and in doing so, they would be able to do the kind of work that tailors things for the men in their service. So it, it, it's a pretty expensive undertaking in terms of money and time to try develop some specific service for men if you just don't have any men coming in. So I know budgets are limited for services that do this kind of work everywhere, but more effort on reaching those populations in a meaningful way is necessary. I, I don't think adding stock images of men to websites, for example, which I've seen done and which is, comes from a place of good intentions, is effective at all in getting men who never in their mind are thinking to Google the Butterfly Foundation, for example. 
And that's that's not a yeah, right. Butterfly Foundation because they do incredible work. Right. They're always trying hard. Um, it's just the reality of how gendered eating disorders can be. And, and Butterfly is quite um, open to say that the need more needs to be done in reaching the male contingent of the yeah. people that they need to be reaching. So, and that's, and that's great. And look, everyone does. Re, the researchers, clinicians. Um, it's hard. It's hard to ask a service to go and reach out to a population that even researchers can't do in a, I would say, a consistent and substantive way. Yeah. So, so what would be some of your suggestions initially for if if you would simply wanted to make a start in moving in the right direction? Depends on who you are. So, if you're a service and you want to reach out to a particular group, let's say that you wanted to reach more gay men who we know are susceptible to eating disorders relative yeah. to heterosexual men then your first thoughts are where do gay men congregate what organizations already in that space could we work with and work together to help reach them and if we reach them what are we doing with them so that when they enter our service for the first time it doesn't feel like they're just being tacked on to existing services. It, they're big asks. Like they, these are big asks that require dedicated resources, which are often in short supply. We talked a lot about how uh, eating disorders and other mental health issues are often found together. And we've seen how anxiety and depression or OCD can quite often occur with eating disorders. Should organisations that provide services for individual mental health conditions be working more closely together? Absolutely. I think when you first approach the field of psychological disorders and you read the DSM or any similar classification system for the psychological disorders, you get the impression that there are these distinct boxes that people fall into. And if you have that checklist of symptoms, then you are that. But a better way to think about it is that there is this giant floating sphere of psychological malady that humans can experience and it is so massive and complex that we reach into that sphere and just carve out whatever seems to cluster together enough often enough that we can put a label on it so we can understand it but that is so far from a full understanding and this is why people move between eating disorder diagnoses all the time why there seems to be so much overlap why there's always contentious debates over classification and it means that really we ought to be talking a lot more and to stop worrying so much about the precise disorder that people fall into or do not because look at the end of the day we just aren't there and even if we could the treatments we have overlap all the time another very long complicated story and we're probably wasting yeah. a lot of time going into look, that i'll just i'll just throw in a a little shot against research fiefdoms built on diagnoses like that. People who insist, oh, I, I am I am the king or queen of, say, binge eating disorder. And it's like, no, these are, these are all interconnected. And rather than than hoarding and protecting resources, and we we could do yeah. a lot more working together. Look, is, is there anything else about eating disorders, uh, particularly when we're talking about men that you think is is relevant for our discussion i think often often when i speak about male eating disorders i'm talking on this this thesis that you know, eating disorders in men can look very different and i 
usually point to some of the most different manifestations of them, which often attract follow-up questions so that I can illustrate that point, that eating disorders can be very different. But it's important to note that there are a lot of men out there who have eating disorders that look like what you might call the archetypal eating disorders in women. So boys and men can get anorexia, they can want to be thin, and the adjustments you need to make can be as simple as using the correct normative data when you're running clinical work with males so that you're scoring males against other males in terms of the severity of their symptoms as opposed to women. Thank you very much for being so available and generous with your time. I really do appreciate that. Well, cool, Sam. It was a pleasure. I thought they were really thoughtful questions. To find out a bit more about Dr. Scott Griffiths and the work that he's done, I've put a link to his profile at the University of Melbourne in the show notes. He's done some really, really interesting studies, and I highly recommend that you check them out if you're a nerd about things like that, like I am. And remember, help is available for anyone struggling with an eating disorder through the Butterfly Helpline on 1-800-ED-HOPE. That's one 800 And I'd like to draw your attention particularly to the Reset program on the Butterfly webpage. It's a conversation about boys' body image, and it's there for boys and their carers. There's also a page within the Butterfly website specifically dedicated to men, eating disorders, and body image. If you think you're at risk or you'd just like to know a little bit more, we strongly encourage you to go and have a look at those. Start at butterfly.org.au or go to the direct links, which are in the show notes. If you like this episode of the Butterfly Podcast, you might want to write a review, leave us a rating wherever you get your podcasts. We would really appreciate it. And remember, as always, please share it with a friend. I'm Sam Iken. The Butterfly Podcast is an Iken Media production for Butterfly Foundation. Butterfly.